Rabbi Stephen Wernick reflects on Zionism. This sermon is called A Return to Judaism and to Torah. Enjoy. As many of you know, I spent last week in Basel, Switzerland, celebrating the 125th anniversary of the first Zionist Congress. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this, I think, a lot um, over the next couple of weeks. Certainly, there's a Rosh Hashanah sermon in it. Uh, and, you know, truthfully, there was a lot of the uh, celebration and being there that was uh, really spectacular, just from the historical perspective, but also from the personal perspective. Uh, Yitzhak Ben-Svi was the second president of Israel, and in 1960, my mother discovered that we have a relationship to him. His mother, Atara Shimshi, um, is his mother and my great-grandmother were first cousins. So I think that makes us either first or second cousins twice removed. I, I don't know how that works. Lauren, you'll tell me about this later. Um, but what's important about the Zionist Congress is that Tzvi Shimshi, Tara's husband, Yitzchak's father, was the co-organizer of the original Zionist Congress with Theodor Herzl. And so when I walked into this magnificent room that I've learned about all my life and that I've seen pictures of and so forth and so on, I got the chills because as one of my friends who was with me said to me, you realize, Steve, you're not the first person in your family to be in this room for this purpose. 125 years ago Monday, Theodor Herzl founded Zionism. And so this was a celebration. It was an opportunity for reflection, for discussion. Uh, what does Zionism look like into the future? How do we deal with the challenges that Zionism is facing today, where Zionism in many circles of the world, including Jewish circles, has become a dirty word? It was also an opportunity for Torah. And I want to share some of the Torah that I learned last Shabbat in Zurich, actually, from my friend and colleague, Rabbi David Wolpe, who's the rabbi of Sinai Temple in Beverly Hills, California, uh, very often rated the number one rabbi in the world um, because he's just that brilliant. Uh, I've known him a long time, too. Uh, we both were from Philadelphia originally. We both went to the Harzain day camp. And in fact, I think his brother Paul taught me how to swim. You've been around long enough in certain circles, uh, and you just have multiple degrees of connection. Um, David presented last Shabbat afternoon around this Parsha a wonderful analysis and a juxtaposition of what does it mean to be a leader in the diaspora versus a leader of a sovereign state, of a country, and the differences between the perspective of the morality of the use of power depending upon your vantage point. And he did this by comparing Moshe Rabbeinu to Theodor Herzl, both of whom were diaspora leaders. Moshe never made it to Eretz Israel, And Theodor Herzl, though he recorded his diary 125 years ago Monday night, tonight I founded the Jewish state, maybe not this week, maybe not next week, but in 50 years, certainly. And he died before he could do it. But Israel was established almost 50 years to the day in which he recorded that in his diary. 
Theodor Herzl was a diaspora leader. And he compared also, therefore, David Wolpe compared David Ben-Gurion, who was in the state of Israel and the first prime minister of Israel, with David Hamelech. Uh, there's a lot of Davids in this, so I have to make sure we understand which David we're talking about. Is it Wolpe, is it Ben-Gurion, or is it Hamelech? Uh, but the difference between being a leader of a sovereign country when you have power versus being a leader in the diaspora where you are powerless. Um, it's a fascinating analysis. If you think about Moses and Herzl, there are striking parallels between them in terms of their education, their character, their plans for their people, and their ultimate successes. Moses has three fights, three fights in the opening pages of Exodus, of Shemot. He goes out into the street and he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, a slave, and he intervenes. He goes out the next day and he sees a Hebrew, an Israelite, fighting with another Hebrew, another Israelite, and he intervenes. He has to escape from Egypt because he's worried about Pharaoh's response to his killing the Egyptian from that first fight. He flees to Midian. He goes to a well. At that well, he meets Jethro's daughters who are being harassed by shepherders, and he intervenes. Moses is a character, not a character in the theatrical sense, but a person whose characteristic is such he cannot bear the sight of injustice. Wherever he sees it, he has to respond. And in the early parts of the Torah, he responds instinctively with action. But ultimately, Moses, who viewed himself not a man of words, in the beginning of the Torah, when, Mo, when God sends Moses down to Egypt, Moses, his last argument as to why it shouldn't be hid is, you know, kabed anochi. I have a heavy tongue. I'm not a man of words. And yet when we come to Devarim, to the Sefer, the book of the Torah that we're in now, Moses is only a man of words. Ve'ela Devarim, Moshe says to the people of Israel. These are the words. Moses becomes, in the diaspora, a leader of words, a giver of law. A person through his oration sets up the ability of the people in their journey to succeed. Herzl's background and characteristics are strikingly similar. In 1893, Herzl thought that the solution to anti-Semitism was that Jews should be baptized and should assimilate. If only the Jews would be like everyone else, they would stop hating us and stop threatening us. In 1895, just two years later, he changed his mind. He is a reporter for a Viennese newspaper. He's in Paris, and he's covering the Alfred Dreyfus affair, where Colonel Alfred Dreyfus was accused of treason and if you read the history of that time, everybody knew, including the French, that it was bogus. Everybody knew that the charges were false and that Dreyfus was the scapegoat. 
But what moved Herzl to make the shift in just two years from a plan of solving the Jewish problem of baptism and assimilation to a plan of Jewish nationalism and Zionism was that when he was in the streets listening to the mobs, they weren't shouting death to Dreyfus. They were shouting death to the Jews. Their anger, their sense of betrayal was not against the person who may or may not have committed treason, but against the people from whom he was a part of. Now, can you imagine a Monday night being in Basel, Switzerland, in the Symphony Hall, where Herzl founded the Zionist Congress, and out comes the great-granddaughter of Alfred Dreyfus. And she spends a few moments sharing with the crowd what does it mean to bear the legacy of her great-grandfather and the work, the work that it took to rehabilitate his name. Remember, everybody knew those charges were false, but it wasn't until about 15, 20 years ago that the French government finally apologized and exonerated Dreyfus. He was sentenced to nine years of heavy labor in Devil's Island for a treason that he'd never committed, and it destroyed his life. One of Herzl's biographers wrote about that spectacle. The ghostly spectacle of that winter morning must have shaken him, Herzl, to the depths of his being. It was as if the ground had been cut away from under his feet, in this sense, Herzl could say that the Dreyfus affair made him a Zionist. 125 years later, his great-granddaughter, Yael Pearl Ruiz, spoke to a group of the World Zionist Organization, and she had made Aliyah to Israel just a year and a half earlier. Moses and Herzl respond to the powerlessness of their people lacking sovereignty. In both cases, Moses and Herzl, they were ultimately dependent on other people to intervene to solve those problems. For Moses, it was God and Pharaoh. And even after each of those plagues, it wasn't until the 10th, it wasn't until Pharaoh's own son was found dead before him with Mekorot Bechorim, with the death of the firstborn, that Pharaoh finally acquiesced and decided to let the people go. And Herzl needed the intervention of world leaders, the diplomacy of the world at a time of, of uh, nationalism to agree to create a national um, entity for the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Both Moses and Herzl were men of words. Herzl, an artist, a playwright, a journalist, Moses making the transition from lo ish devarim anochi and vekaved lashon anochi, that I'm not a man of words, I have a heavy tongue, to ve'ela hadvarim asher diber Moshe. To these are the words that Moses spoke. In the diaspora, if you lack the power of state, all you have are words ideas, 
and vision. And quite frankly, you have the luxury to criticize the decisions of those that are in power and have to make daily the difficult decisions that impact the society in which they live, the decisions of how do you protect your people? Because ultimately what it means to have sovereignty is to possess a land and to hold on to it and to govern the people within that land. And your first responsibility of governance is that of safety, the right to live in peace. And so it's easy to be an armchair coach of a game or to be an armchair prime minister or president when you don't have to make the decisions, the difficult decisions about the use of power. When we look, therefore, at Ben-Gurion and David HaMelech, we see something different. It's a different moral calculus when you sit in the seat of power and you have to take the, the moral choices that ensure the safety of your people. David HaMelech, King David, he was a shepherd. He fought Goliath. He wrote poetry. He dethroned Saul. He reigned 40 years. And David was surely a ruler who had blood on his hands. In the 40 years in which he ruled, he was deeply flawed. He acted as his own self-interest often. You see it in the very beginning when he comes onto the scene with the battle for Goliath. The first thing David says before he goes into the field of battle is he basically asks, what's in it for me? What will the person who defeats Goliath get as a result of that defeat? David, as Rabbi Wolpe pointed out, was a Machiavellian schemer who was responsible for the deaths of innocents. And well before the Game of Thrones, nobody played the Game of Thrones like King David did. He fought 66 battles. 66 battles. And in some cases, the Torah talks about how David completely destroyed certain cities and villages and engaged in the mass transfer of human beings. And that's even before you get to what is unfortunately the most well-known example of his lack of morality, which is the case of Bathsheba. And I say unfortunately because I think that compared to the other things, this one pales in comparison. But, you know, David's on the roof of the palace and he sees Bathsheba bathing in the distance. He finds out she's married. He knows he's married. He sends Uriel, her husband, to the front line, specifically on a suicide mission, so she will become a widow and therefore become available to the king. As I said, well before Game of Thrones, Hamelech David was a flawed individual. But yet what's interesting here is that when the prophet Nathan comes to chastise him, and when David finds out that as a result of his sin, he's not going to be blessed with the building of the temple, of the Beit Mikdash, David acknowledges God's sovereignty. He could have said, off with Nathan's head and put it on a spike. That's what we would have expected from any other ruler of that time period. But no, David engages in tshuva. 
He maintains his, his fidelity with God, and that's what makes him different. The Torah, our tradition, understands that David, ultimately, like all Jewish heroes, are flawed. We're human beings. We make mistakes. But it's because of David's ongoing fidelity with God, his ability to do tshuva, that David, which, by the way, means literally beloved, becomes the beloved of God, and through David's line comes the Mashiach, the ultimate redeemer of the world. Uh, Ben-Gurion, too, has to make the difficult decisions of how do you defend a state? How do you build a state? How do you maintain sovereignty when your army is made up of 8 out of 10 people who just survived the Holocaust three years earlier? I read somewhere that the IDF at the time of the founding of state had seven different languages that the soldiers spoke. Can you imagine the commanders having to give the orders to their soldiers in seven different languages? But Ben-Gurion has to make the difficult decisions of how do you establish a state and keep it? Do you fight for Jerusalem or do you let it go? Do you um, blow up the Atalina? and force other Jews to make a decision to fight a civil war or to join the Haganah? How do you hold and defend a territory to the exclusion of others? How do you bring a people together to fight together? It's difficult to make these calls. And this, these types of calls, these moral dilemmas that the rulers of state, especially in Israel, have to face on a daily basis are very complicated. How do you balance your vision, your values, from the real politic, the mess of ruling a society that is under constant attack? We're blessed here in Canada. We have the United States to our south. We have oceans to our west and to our east. And we have the Arctic to our north. We're not in a bad neighborhood. The development of this country, we may have fought foreign wars because of alliances that we've had with others in those foreign lands, but we've never had to face a fight for our own existential survival from our neighbors. It's difficult to make those calls to be a prime minister, a president, and to balance one's ideals with the real politic. Values the application of values and difficult decisions of state. From a distance, we want and expect to be like Moses and Herzl. But in the muck of reality, we understand that ruling is more like, like King David and David Ben-Gurion. The real question is, therefore, how do Jews preserve, foster, and apply Jewish values when they must take care of themselves? And this is perhaps one of the greatest challenges to Zionism today because at its heart, it is the center of the focus that those who would be anti-Zionist criticize and complain about the Jewish state. Now, this does not mean that there can't be disagreements with regard to Israel's political and military policies. If we're going to be value-based, value then of course there must be. Israelis, like all human beings, make mistakes. 
But there is a difference between recognizing human error and trying to correct it and bemoaning, bemoaning the loss of Jewish values, which seem to somehow be best preserved in a hothouse by people who do not bear the responsibility for the lives and the security of others. How do we preserve and foster and apply Jewish values? Today's Torah reading gives us a very important response to that question. And it's something that often perhaps gets glossed over. Chapter 17 of Devarim in the second Aliyah. If you have entered the land that your God has assigned to you and taken possession of it and settled in it, and you decide, I will set a king over me to do as all the other nations have done, you shall be free to set a king over you. Be sure to set that king over yourself, one of your own people, one who, and as opposed to one who is not your kinsman. Moreover, that king shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses. Since Adonai has warned you, you must not go back that way again. The king should not have many wives, lest his heart go astray, nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. In other words, the king has to be king has to be tempered by the power in which he has the ability to rule. And then the Torah says, kishivto al mamlachto." And when he's seated on his royal throne, vekatavlo et mishnah Torah hazot, he shall write for himself a Torah, al sefer milifnea konim alevim, a scroll of the Torah that he should keep and read it throughout his life. What is it that keeps the Jewish king grounded in our values when we are tested in the real politic of leading and ruling a sovereign nation? We keep that Torah, those values at our feet. We constantly read it and reflect upon it. Our Torah gives us thousands of years ago an answer to the critics who would have us just lay down and allow our enemies to overcome. And so in conclusion, on the most immediate level, Israel is still a place where Jews can find a secure home, where every Jew lives by right and not by sufferance, and where Jews can develop as a people and not simply as individuals. Israel remains committed to the principle that it should be a place where dominant culture is Jewish and where authentic Jewish cultural development, good, bad, or indifferent, is part of the life of everybody in the state, including the non-Jews who live there, and not merely a small group of intellectuals or ultra-Orthodox. Another David, David Eliezri, who writes for the uh, Jewish People's uh, Policy Conference, says that at the highest level, Despite all the difficulties, Israel is still pursuing the Jewish dream of Herzl and Moses, striving to become a good society, even as it strives to become a normal one, the reality of David HaMelech and David Ben-Gurion. The tension between Zionism and the search for normality 
to be like all nations and the effort to build especially Jewish informed polity, a light unto the nations is real. But the fact that we can have this conversation is a reason for celebration of Zionism and of Judaism. For as Theodor Herzl himself wrote, that Zionism is nothing but first and foremost a return to Judaism and to Torah. Shabbat Shalom.